Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Today we have a very special guest. His name is Simon and he dubs himself as the uneducated economist. Um, which is a very interesting name. So we're going to jump right in. And so welcome, Simon. Thank you for joining us here today on Dirty Boots Capital. Yeah, thank you, Tony. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, so let's start with uh, the uneducated economist. Where did that name come from, my friend? Yeah, um, uneducated economist pretty much um, came from the fact that I never went to school, never took any classes, never really had any kind of formal training in economics. and I don't work the industry. I just really have an obsession for studying the, studying the economy. So I am the uneducated economist when it comes to, to the formal training and understanding of what the economy is. But yet I have managed to pick up through online studies or just listening and you know to people on interviews, reading speeches, I have managed to pick up quite a bit of knowledge when it comes to understanding macroeconomics. And then having picked it up in such a way, now I can able I um, have this ability to talk to people who may be on just the working class, not really understanding of what macro ma- macroeconomics really is. I'm able to break down some of these topics into a more understandable uh, way so that they can have a conversation about it. And that's really where the uneducated economist got its name from. So. Yeah, I, th- I think that's absolutely incredible. You just you know, you just kind of put yourself out there, you learn as you go. And one of the things I try to share with folks is, um, especially when you're starting your own business, or you're getting out there and you're, you know, you just got to be vulnerable, you know, to, to certain things and just, you know, know that, you know, hey, I'm putting myself out there on YouTube. I don't know 100% about everything out there. And, and I'm learning each and every day, just like you, you know, just like a lot of guys who are putting and women who are putting ourselves out there. So I appreciate what you do. Um, and uh, just so the audience knows, you know, you actually just uh, presented at the Rebel Capitalist Live event in Houston. Yeah. Uh, now, that was uh, so the audience knows that that was no small audience. I believe there was about 650 to 700 people in the audience. So uh, congratulations for presenting there. Yeah, that was that was quite the experience. Now, I have never been like I've done some kind of like, you know, speaking in front of crowds before I've done plays and acting and stuff like that. But to get up in front of a crowd of 700 people to talk for an hour was just unlike anything that I have ever done before. And it was uh, it was quite the experience, you know, and especially to have such big names on that stage with like Robert Kiyosaki and Ron Paul and then all the awesome, you know, other, you know, speakers there, Lynn Alden and Mark Moss. And yeah. it was just it was just so such an incredible experience, you know, for me. So um, but it was uh, it was kind of funny because in the green room before I went on, I was really nervous. And uh, there was this guy, Mike, who was in there. Mike says to me, he goes, you're going on next. And I said, yeah. And he goes, man, 
George must have a lot of confidence in you to put you on Epic Hiyataki. And I'm just like, oh man, you know, it's yeah, you you know, these YouTube channel, this YouTube channel and and the videos, when you put yourself out there, you challenge yourself, you know, it's really amazing some of the things that that can come from that. And um, yeah, not having that under like that formal understanding of what economics comes from, from like the schools and from, you know, training from say a corporation or something like that. It doesn't mean that you don't know. It just means that you don't understand it in, in their level. So when I start to speak, people like to listen to that because it really is coming from a point of view that is not 30,000 feet in the air, like yeah. George says. It's really from the ground. And it is a different perspective on you know some of these really important topics. A lot of people think it's over their head. It's not. It's yeah. not something that's so over your head that you can't understand it. I mean, believe me, I'm I barely graduated high school and I am now on stage speaking on, you know, a level that is quite up there, you know? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it's nothing that you can't do yourself. I mean, it's, it's possible. Yeah, Yeah, no, you did a great job there in Houston. Uh, So tell us a little bit about why understanding macroeconomics is something that, you know, every person should try to understand some amount of macroeconomics. What's the importance there? Well, you know, understanding, I mean, understanding monetary policy and fiscal policy, understanding interest rates, understanding like the bond market, these things are really complicated. But once you start wrapping your mind around it, once you start understanding why these decisions are being made the way they are, you can start making decisions in your own life that will benefit you in a way that will protect you from from some of the um, unforeseen that are coming. Now, a lot of people, it's very difficult to understand what it is that the Federal Reserve is up to. You know, they say one thing, they do another. A lot of people say that they're up to something, but they're really not doing that. I mean, it's just like, it it gets very like, you know, a lot of people misinterpret what it is that's happening there. And really like even this situation right now, I see so many people talking about how the Federal Reserve is going to be raising interest rates and raising interest rates. And lifting of interest rates and i'm thinking you know they still haven't done that yet yeah in fact they're still buying treasuries right they are backing off they haven't completed but they're still quantitative easing they're not lifting interest rates yet but people are now changing their behavior and the way they conduct themselves you know so are they listening to the words that they're using or are they following the actions because there's two different things taking place there understanding that is really going to be beneficial to you when you're making the decisions on major purchases, like trying to get into a house or maybe even a car or just like whether or not you should continue to live in a particular region. You know, these things you really, if you understand what it is that these guys are up to, then it'll make those decisions a lot easier for you. And you wouldn't be, you know, regretting them as much if, if you do regret them. Yeah, no, that's, that's a, that's a good explanation because unfortunately uh, a lot of what you see in in politics and with the Federal Reserve and in the media, a lot of it's just smoke and mirrors. Um, what, like you said, what what they say isn't actually what they do, um, which is unfortunate. And, and we're going to get into that a little bit here um, because you have firsthand knowledge. We're going to jump into lumber prices, right? So tell tell us a little bit about what you do for work and about. Let's just jump right into lumber prices, what's going on there, because they've been crazy the last year plus. So, 
Yeah. Um, so uh, for your audience to know, I work retail lumber. I work at a bomb paw hardware store in Astoria. I'm not somebody who's like really fancy and sells like, you know, million dollars worth of lumber every single week. I mean, I am literally the guy who's at the counter ringing up two by fours to an individual customer. Yeah. But I do a lot of special orders and I track down the special order items. So if somebody's looking for like say doors or windows or siding or something like that, that may not be something that we have in stock. I'm the guy they come to, um, to track down all those specialty items. And so I've been in the game a long time. I'm in close contact with a lot of the vendors out there who provide building supplies. And that's pretty much what my position is at the lumber yard. Now, lumber prices have just been crazy, crazy volatile. I mean, over the last couple of years. And to kind of give the audience an idea of what happened, I mean, we're talking lumber prices typically would trade from three to 500 per thousand. And now that's kind of confusing when you're trying to think of per thousand down to a, a single board piece or something. But if you kind of think three to 500 per thousand would equate down to say a two by four, eight selling for around two and a half to three dollars. Now, now, when you say per thousand, you're saying per yeah. thousand board feet. That's correct. Okay. And so when you go down to the lumber yard, generally, you're not buying in the board foot price. You're buying by the piece or you're buying a lineal foot. Yeah. So a two by four, eight has five point three, three board feet in it. It's not really that important, except for if you're buying thousands of them, you know, and then it yeah. becomes important. And when you're buying the wholesale prices or buying, you know, an entire train load or something. But when that that three to five hundred per thousand, that equates down to around two and a half to three dollars for a two by four, eight standard and better. When lumber prices ran up to seventeen hundred per thousand, that same two by four was selling for thirteen dollars and fifty cents. A huge, huge increase in price. So this was like the the range in which that these lumber prices were trading in inside of just a year or two. And there is a lot that went into this. Mainly, it was from a huge inventory depletion that had taken place starting at the end of 2018 and running all through 2019. Mm -hmm. And now this inventory depletion, it came from mainly out of the British Columbia mills. Because what happened there is prior to the 2019 inventory depletion, there was a huge run up in price. It ran up to 650 per thousand. Now, at the time, that was the new all time high back in 2018 at 650 per thousand. At that same time that those prices ran up, the Canadian mills started raising what they call their stumpage fees. And that's the price that they charge the loggers to cut the tree down, which equates down to an input cost going into the mills. Yep. So they raise these these stumpage fees to deal uh, because of the high prices of the of the lumber futures. At the same time, they were also cutting back on the amount of allowable cuts because they were actually in a harvest mode or a salvage mode prior to 2018. It was actually right around 2015 that it peaked out because of a bug infestation that had wiped out a huge chunk of their uh -huh. forest up there. Yeah. So right there at the end of 2018, there was this huge disruption to the entire supply chain when it comes to lumber because of that major contributor to the supply chain coming out of the British Columbia area. It, it, it's kind of weird to think that such like a particular spot can have such an impact, but it does. I mean, it's, it's, it's significant. So as this lumber mills and stuff started going into curtailments on account of the low prices after the stumpage fees were raised and the allowable quota of cuts were, were dropped, these mills up there were just not able to keep up 
with where we're not able to produce at the lower prices because basically the prices went from 650 per thousand down to 300 per thousand. And so that was a significant drop. And there was a lot of lumber in the supply chain at that time. Mm-hmm. So all, all through 2019, all these mills were curtailing development, shutting down production, and just pretty much holding back on the inventory until one day, boom, there was no inventory left and the prices started going back up. And this is now we're going into like this bullwhip effect where you're going from oversupply to undersupply to oversupply again. Now, unfortunately, the situation that we're sitting in right now, we're going back into higher prices. And a lot of this has to go back into that British Columbia area again. They just recently got nailed with some flooding coming on top of a really bad fire season. So between these two, already a difficult region is faced with even more pressure coming into the market. Now, there will be a time when more mills will fire up. Now, they're planning on moving into the southern part of the United States, but that's going to take time to get those things up in operation. And then once they are, it's kind of like anything else out there as far as the flow. It takes a while to get that flow to happen. So that lumber has got to start distributing through the supply chain, through the hubs, out to the different rails and trucks. And already, you know, we're seeing that these things are very difficult to try and accomplish as far as getting these, you know, distribution lines up and working right now. So as far as lumber prices, we're probably going to see these elevated lumber prices for some time. You know, it doesn't seem that there's really any kind of place to, to get a relief from that, especially when you start, you'll go ahead. No, no, that's okay. No, that that's all great information. Uh, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, do you, do you have a feel and, and not to put you on the spot, if you don't, that's okay. Uh, but do you have a feel for what's the percentage of lumber coming in from either uh, British Columbia or from Canada into the States for as far as what we consume? Um, after this whole disruption and with the tariffs and the, and the movement of lumber, I'm, I'm not exactly positive on what it is. Now, I've read stuff in the past that 20% of the softwoods that are consumed here in the United States comes from Canada. So it's a, it's a huge portion of yeah. it. Of that 20%, um, and, and I'm not positive on this, it's somewhere between 15 to 20% now comes from the British Columbia area, but I've heard that it was up as much as 50% at one time. Wow. So there's, yeah, and I, and I, again, like I wish I had these numbers more accurate, but especially more current numbers, but that's kind of what I found. 20% of the, of the softwood imports come from Canada. Okay, so let's, let's tie this back. 20% of the consumption comes from Canada. Okay. No, that's good. That kind of gives us a, a benchmark kind of to, to work with, right? It's not, it's not two to 3%, right? Right. No, it's, a no, it's, significant. A, it's, a, it's a big number. Yeah. It's a big number. Right. So uh, help us understand. Uh, so you helped us understand why the prices are rising, right? They've had floods up in uh, British Columbia. They've had railway issues up there. They had a bug infestation, right? So they had, man, they get, getting uh, slammed up there. And so that's driving prices higher. Um, Let's talk about going just from the perspective of macroeconomics. So let's tie it back into what the uh, what the politicians are doing. So um, we've spoken uh, just briefly uh, about the uh, Secretary Raimondo, right? She's the Commerce Secretary today under under Biden. And uh, they just recently, I think like a month or so ago, raised the lumber tariff with Canada, 
they doubled it actually, I believe. And so, um, I mean, that's not helping the situation for Americans today who are trying to build a house or for, you know, businesses try to, uh, you know, build new homes or build new multifamilies. I mean, this is where we go back to the macro macroeconomics piece of it is to, you know, listen to what they say. And when they say we're trying to help the American people, right? And then you see things like that where they double the tariff on lumber coming from Canada. Is that really helping the American people? Um, that's a really good question. Now, this trade dispute between the United States and Canada when it comes to the softwood, softwood imports, it goes back like generations, and it goes back for decades. And it wasn't that long ago that the former administration had also put tariffs on the softwood imports coming from Canada to about the same tune, about 20 percent, you know, tariffs. And it wasn't to all mills and all regions. It's, you know, it was kind of separate, like some regions got 12 percent tariffs, other people got 28 percent, you know, so it averaged out to this to this 20 percent tariffs that are taking place now. When you think about the reasoning behind it, they say it's because they're putting an unfair advantage or there's an unfair playing field is what they say on our domestic mills here locally. So, you know, I have to think about that. I was like, okay, well, you drive the prices way up and that's a benefit to our local mills. You know, okay. Um, I guess that's one way of, of trying to understand it. But at the same time, these major Canadian producers they're setting up shop within our borders. Mm -hmm. Do they still have to pay those same tariffs when they're operating within the United States? So now who does this really benefit? I mean, is it, is it really benefiting our domestic suppliers here, our, our domestic manufacturers, or is it drawing in manufacturers from another country to try and start producing within the United States? Is that their intention from it? Because to raise the prices of lumber, is not going to start adding to the supply of homes. I mean, that is guaranteed not to happen. And to think that, you know, we're going to increase an already expensive commodity, mm. it seems like that is going to be very painful for, you know, for the American people to to try and, you know, find a place to live. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Obviously, we're in a, a affordability crunch here. I mean, I, I'm in the uh, the rental business, and I see it every day. I you know, I, I was just sharing with somebody, I probably get no word of a lie, 25 emails a day from people looking for rental units, right? Everybody's looking for something that's affordable. And we, we try to help as much as we can. But, uh, you know, uh, prices on everything has skyrocketed as as we all well know, right? We don't, we don't have to beat a dead horse there, right? Uh, you know, but you see these things happening in, in, like you say, in, and, uh, you know, within politics and within the Federal Reserve, what they're saying versus what they're actually doing is in conflict, right? So that's why it's important for us to all have a somewhat of a handle on uh, macroeconomics. And we don't have to be educated in it, right? We don't have to have a degree in it. We just got to be able to, you know, start learning, right? Read an article and yeah, I think probably one of the most important things about understanding is, is that I know, like, when I first started to try and understand what was happening, like, you know, here I'm like, I, I purchased this house, it was in 2007. And now I'm having trouble making my payments. And I'm trying to figure out what it is that's going on. And as I'm watching the news, 
it's as old, almost as if these people were speaking in code. Like I could not <laughs> understand, you know, like I understood the words that they were using. I understood the definitions, but the lingo and the jargon was just so difficult to try and filter through that it just seemed like they were just speaking in some kind of foreign language or something. But then as I started realizing that they do it almost on purpose, like it's it's a it's a way to kind of talk to themselves without like maybe introducing the masses into the into the real idea of what's taking place because they could explain things a lot more simply you yeah. know in a simpler form they choose not to and yeah. and I don't think it's just because they're trying to make themselves look smart I really do think that they are trying to keep the people who already know knowing and the people who don't continue to not know so once you kind of break through that that understanding of what it is that they're talking about, it makes the whole picture much easier to absorb. You know, um, yeah, absolutely. And and yeah. so kudos for guys like you who are you know breaking it down for people uh, you know who don't quite understand it and and put it in uh, just plain English, right? Don't don't give me the Harvard educated view of the world, right? Just just break it down for me. I mean, I'm not a super smart guy, so you know if I can understand some of this stuff anybody can right so uh so we appreciate what you do yeah i appreciate it too i mean i and i find myself like even sometimes after listening to a lot of stuff that i end up talking a lot like them and realize that i'm actually <laughs> like falling into that lingo and language and i was like no man you got to reel back and explain it differently again you know try it you know. But I do like I was like, all of a sudden I'm talking about liquidities and, you know, sovereign debts and stuff and people are like lost, you know, and I'm like, oh, right. OK, sorry, guys. Um, let me try this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because it's it, it, it all plays together when you see, you know, things that the Federal Reserve is doing with U.S. Treasuries and the and the Fed fund rate. And you start going down that path and you start people's eyes will start to glaze over and, you know, uh, you're talking about quantitative easing or quantitative tightening, right? These are, they're all fancy terms, but yeah, you can speak about all this stuff and, you know, uh, you know, and just plain, plain language, right? We don't have to make it hard. So that's, that's what I like, you know, uh, what you do, right? You break yeah. it down for us. So I want to get into, um, because your, your boots on the ground, you see it each and every day, Help me understand with the rising prices of not only lumber, but everything else you see, windows, doors, siding, sheathing, whatever it is, right? What do you see happening with the, with the small to medium-sized businesses, right? Do you see those same businesses walking through the door looking for products? Or have you seen that that population shrink? Have some of them gone out of business because... They just can't do business with these higher prices and the labor shortages. What are you seeing day to day with that population of small to medium sized businesses? Yeah. Um, you know, when it comes to new like construction jobs, you know, I see people wanting to do those new starts, those those housing. You know, like one of the things that I look for is um, floor packages, these TGI packages or iJoyce packages. They're basically the one thing that you don't stock. You have to special order these ones in. Okay. And so when I see a lot of these things rolling through the yard, it lets me know that there's a lot of housing activity taking place. But now that's not necessarily the position that I'm in. Like I don't sell the house packages. I'm more into doing the special orders. Hmm. So to kind of give you an idea, 2017, 18, when things were really pumping, I would probably order... 
five doors a week and say two to three window packages. Right. Okay. That's people looking to, you know, replace the old windows in their house or, you know, maybe replace the front door. Just, you know, just kind of on an average, that would be like pretty normal. I would sell, you know, anywhere from two to five deck packages a week. So those so, are people that are remodeling or improving remodeling, their home. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. And that would be, and then, you know, in that you got the small time contractors, you know, yep. who, who are, who are doing that kind of work. Now I'm not in an area that does like major developments, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Clatsop County has 30,000 people in it. Astoria has 10,000 people. We're pretty small. So this is like, you know, just the onesie twosie mom, pa operations that are taking place here. So that was like 2017, 18. Right now, I sell maybe, I think I sold three windows this week, Wow. you know? Um, I sold one door, one door package. It was four doors, three interior doors. Like the amount of people who call looking for contractors is like almost non-existent. I used to get them all day long. People looking for, for people to, you know, do any kind of work. I really don't get that now. Um, do, do you think it's because of inflation of those, of those doors and windows and people are just holding off saying, geez, I, I hope the prices come down or what, what's causing that? I, I think it's, I think it's a couple of issues. I think one of them is the availability. Like when somebody says, Hey man, I want to replace the windows in my house. And you say, yeah, no problem. I'll have your windows in three months. Yeah. They're like, Oh, um, let me rethink that. You know, like I was hoping to enjoy it here next month. You know, I, I don't want to wait three months. And so yeah. like the idea that the, that the items are so far out has kind of deterred a lot of people from wanting to do the projects just because of like the uncertainty of how long it's going to take. But that's pretty minimal. I see like people have kind of come to the understanding that things are going to be that late. So, you know, when I tell them it's three months, they're not surprised. So I, I, at first they were now, now not so much, but I think really what happened was, is that when everybody got locked down and they were handed a bunch of stimulus checks and they were given the ability to work on those houses, they pulled past projects from like, you know, how much like they've been waiting to redo the deck and, you know, the old ladies finally like, okay, listen, you were locked down and you got a check. So go do it. You know? Yeah. Make it happen. Yeah, go make it happen. So all these past projects got pulled pulled in. Yeah. And then also like future projects, because now they're locked down and they got the time and the money right now, those also yeah. got pulled up. So right there during that whole stimulus lockdown and big rundown to the lumber yard to buy all the pressure treated lumber, because we essentially ran out of lumber in, um, well, what was it? 2020 to may march what was it like march of 2020 or so yeah yeah you I couldn't mean, find pressure you, yeah you couldn't find yeah. pressure treated you couldn't find trek stacking you couldn't find yeah. you couldn't find you couldn't find anything it was all it was all gone and so that's what i feel really happened was is that all these projects kind of came to fruition right there at that one time and so now we're dealing with the ripple effect of that as people were like i don't need a fence i just built it i don't need my place remodeled i did that you know it's like i've yeah. already done all this stuff so trying to find those projects now is a lot more difficult especially when you have higher prices and no stimulus check do you, do you think there's less contractors and business today i'm i'm talking about the smaller guys right do you think there's less contractors and business today 
or the same amount of contractors in business today? Um, considering how much I'm selling on the retail end, I would have to say there's less. Yeah. You know, yeah. I would have to say there's less of them. Now, whether they, it's middle of winter, you know, I mean, so a lot of guys take this time off. So it's not unusual to see a drop in, in, in my customer count, but it's pretty unusual the amount that it, it's dropped. And, you know, a lot of this also has to do with the supply of things. Like it's not just the price because, you know, the prices are elevated. Just to kind of give you an idea, like, the store brings in a items like these a items are items that you're going to roll over every single week. Like you turn mm -hmm. them over constantly. Yep. And typically when you would order in your a items from, you know, on your weekly stock orders, you would get 90 to 95% of them. Right. You know, very rarely would you like become, you know, get a back order on them. I mean, sure. occasionally there'd be something in there. Now you get like 16% of it. So of the wow. A items, you only, yeah, it's like you, you'd only, you're only getting a little tiny piece and wow, that's, that that's doesn't huge. Leave, yeah, it's huge. Right. <laughs> so now, so now you're only getting like a certain amount of them in the ones that you do get in. Well, that's pretty high demand stuff and you can't find it. So what happens to the prices, right? Yep. They go up, they go up dramatically. Now, this is kind of one of the things that I'm starting to see is like, mm. It's not so much like the price is moving up. It's the availability of stuff is just not there. Yeah. And that's, and that's what's really driving the prices. And I'm not like trying, I'm not trying to say like all the money printing in the world hasn't driven the prices up. I'm saying that it's not the only thing. Yeah. I carry 15 pound felt, you know, what 15 pound yeah. felt is it's a very common building item. There is nothing special about this stuff. It has been used for a vapor barrier for, eons eons right in my entire <laughs> life i've been selling lumber since i was 18 years old i'm 45 there's always been 15 pound felt in the lumber yard that's yep. it's a common item for the last five years i have sold it for 31 dollars 88 today it's 31 dollars 88 it hasn't changed one dime not mm. a penny and now i have to think about that it was just like why would 15 pound felt seem to hold on to that price does it happen to be the one piece of mm items out there that is in a deflationary situation yeah. or there's probably not a whole lot of material going into it right some fiber some asphalt it's probably mostly automated the way it's working so you don't have to rely on like you know people showing up or getting COVID or anything so you have this situation with this particular product where it didn't really feel the effects of like the supply shortage or a bunch of money printing. It's not a high demand product because there's so many other vapor barriers out there for sale. It just goes to the show is like not everything went up. And so we have to look at what's going on here as not just money printing, but definitely supply issues that are happening. Absolutely. No, that's a, that's a good point. Uh, so a couple of good points there, you know, it's, it's not just the, the money printer, at the fed causing the inflationary forces it's it's the floods it's the supply chain it's the labor shortage it's a lot of different things that's causing it right and that's where you know where where we talk about trying to understand the macroeconomics of things the best you can helps um, helps you understand that bigger picture so much better. So if you're buying a house or you're going to go buy a car or, you know, I think about the big ticket items, but, you know, even just going to the grocery store, right. And going to Walmart, right. And buying certain things. 
understanding what's happening in the world and in this country helps so much more. So, you know, you, you, you talk about the 15 pound felt not going up in price and that's, that's a great, <laughs> right. That's, that's a good thing. Uh, unfortunately, I, I have four extra rolls in my garage that I'm not using. I, I was hoping you were going to tell me, tell me they went from $30, a uh, a roll to like $600 a roll. And I was going to post them on Craigslist this afternoon, but you didn't tell me uh, that. Yeah. Unfortunately <laughs> there's uh, yeah, there's no return on investment in 15 pound felt. <laughs> no. So, so let, let's, so let's talk maybe a little bit more about maybe some silver linings. Cause I don't want it to be all, you know, all doom and gloom for the audience right there. I think there are some good things happening out there. So, so what do you see as, you know, some of the, some of the positive things happening out there? Um, well, you know, some of the positive things that I see, and a lot of people probably in, in, you know, it actually it has its positive and its negatives to it as well. But one of the positive things that I have seen out there is how easy it is to make money, you know, how easy it really is to, to try and generate passive income or side income. This is a time that is unlike any any other that anybody has ever experienced in the history. And so to not take advantage of that is is really like, you know, something that I think people should really take a second look at. There is a lot of ways of making money right now that is that that everybody should be jumping on. Um, I happen to find a niche here doing YouTube stuff, but you know, there's other things that I'm starting to look at to try and, you know, trying to to try and bring in some passive incomes. You know, there's the idea of like affiliate sales or, you know, filled by Amazon or whatever there's, they're out, there are out there, you know, these gig, gig economies that are starting to yeah. pop up everywhere. These are really unique ways of being able to generate income that, that is unlike anything ever happened. So to me, that's a silver lining coming in, you know, that, that, you, you know, that these things are becoming more prevalent. The other thing that I find is that I'm more of a saver. I'm not necessarily like the investor type, you know, as interest rates have been falling over the last 40 years. I mean, everybody kind of anticipated that they could buy like a particular item and watch those items go up in price. Right now, that to me is a very speculative way of kind of looking at things. When you save, you want to put your money towards something that is going to guarantee you a return on it, even if it's a small return, yeah. 2% or something like that. So if interest rates do rise and we start going into a continual rising environment of interest rates, well, that's going to be beneficial to the saver out there. So for the first time, you don't have to worry about investments or whether or not your investment's going to do well. You actually get to save your money and see your return take place from it. Yeah. Now, granted, going into an inflationary situation that doesn't exactly like, you know, cheer you on or anything. But to me, that is a silver lining. That's something that you didn't have before is the option to possibly save going into the future. Yeah. So I think I look at like rising interest rates as a good thing, you know, as something that's going to be a positive. Um, you know, the country was founded off of savers and producers well now we're debtors and spenders you know and so like you know anything that's kind of shifts that direction back towards producing and saving again i think is probably a good thing even yeah. as painful as it'll be no you're you're absolutely right i mean for the last couple of years we've been in this uh 
crazy inflationary environment because of the amount of money creation that's been happening, right? So, you know, even if you were saving, and I mean, we all know you put money in the bank, you're not saving, you're not making any any return on that money, and then you get hit with inflation, uh, and and you know what used to be a hundred dollars in the bank that you put there, maybe is worth I don't know eighty dollars, right? Uh, so I think you're absolutely right in this in this uh, environment where rates will start going up. Uh, yeah, hopefully there's that. If not make make more money, hopefully we're able to uh, preserve our wealth at the very least, right? At least if there if we put a hundred dollars in the bank, hopefully that hundred dollars doesn't go to eighty. Hopefully that hundred dollars at the very least stays at a hundred dollars. And, uh, you know, hopefully if, uh, you know, uh, you know, I don't have a lot of faith in the Federal Reserve and, and the politicians that they're going to get this inflation uh, under control anytime soon. So, yeah, well, um, you know, I, I have I have to think about the uh, credible threats, right, because it's more about inflation expectation than it is about the actual inflation, you know. Inflation expectation is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you think there's going to be inflation, then you're going to spend your money ahead of a time, which is actually going to cause the inflation to begin to take place. Now, there's a couple of speeches. There's a video that I'd done a while back, but um, it wasn't that long ago, really. But I had brought three speeches together, one from 2001, Ben Bernanke had done, a John Williams speech from 2018, and then a more recent one from a Christopher Waller, is it? Anyway, if you read these three speeches and you watch that video, you can kind of see from back in 2001 that Ben Bernanke, he said that we were going to run into this situation where we were going to be at the lower bound of zero and that there was going to be an issue with dropping interest rates to try and stimulate the economy. He said that's okay because there's plenty of tools that the Federal Reserve could use. And that's where I came up with this credible threats. And it's the story of the guy who makes the gold machine. And with this gold machine, he can produce as much gold at will with very little power or energy. (laughs) So the moment that this information gets out to the market, the price of gold would plummet even before the guy even builds the machine, right? Before he produces any gold at all, just the credible threat alone that he could do it would plummet the price on the market. So this is one of the tools that they use, these credible threats. And there was a great example of the credible threats when it came to the special purpose vehicles that they set up, these lending yep. facilities. The corporate lending facility was so spread out there in the media. Everybody, even YouTubers all over the place were screaming at the top of their lungs about how the Federal Reserve was going into buying corporate debt. They bought a little bit. They bought a little bit of that corporate debt, established the credible threat and the pouring of people trying to front run the Federal Reserve just went diving into that, into those corporate debts totally funded the corporations, got them all the bond purchases that they needed at the time, worked swimmingly, right? So I have to think to myself, did they really lose control or are they still trying to keep that credible threat going? Like, we're going to raise rates. We're going to raise real rates. We're going to raise those rates up real high, you know, get ready for it. We're going to double up. In fact, we're going to raise them so fast and furiously, you're not going to even make your head spin. Well, then everybody starts behaving in different fashions because they're now getting ready for the Federal Reserve to start raising interest rates. It may get them to the point where they go to raise interest rates and they say, oh, the economy's slowing down. We may have to postpone our interest rate hike for a little bit, guys. Yeah, But we're going to do it. Yeah, it's the, it it's, it's the conditioning. It's that conditioning yeah. of the market, right? 
you know, they come out with their dot plots and all their different things where they don't actually do anything. But, you know, what what they say, to your point, goes a long way to manipulating the market to do what they want it to do. Right. And then see, that's just the thing, because it is a credible threat. If the market doesn't behave in the way they want it to with their words, then they'll do it. Right. They'll raise the rates. Yeah. And, then and they'll they, be like, they see, I told you we were going to raise them. Yeah. <laughs> so they get what they want no matter what. And and so you also have to think like, what is it that they're trying to do? Because you have interest rates and then you have like real rates. And this is something that a lot of people don't quite wrap their head around. So the easiest way to kind of understand that is if you have an investor who's planning on getting a 2% in interest rate on their investment and inflation is running 1%. The investor gets a 1% real interest rate. If the inflation expectation falls, right, that'll raise the real interest rate. So if inflation expectation drops to zero, now the investor gets his 2% interest. The real interest rates rises as the inflation expectation falls. Well, think about it the other way. If the inflation expectation rises, what does that do? It lowers the real real interest rates that are out there. So now pretty soon people are looking at their 3% interest on a mortgage as thinking, hey, that's a pretty good deal. I better take advantage of this because if I don't, there's going to be a 7% inflation coming into the future. I'm going to lose a bunch of money. So this gets people like going out and taking out those loans and trying to get ahead of inflation by buying into the idea that there's this inflation expectation coming. Yeah. If you honestly think that there's going to be a 7% inflation going into the next 30 years. Yeah. But if you go and look at the treasuries, they don't expect that. Like yeah. they are anticipating some inflation coming, but that's down at like 2% for the next 30 years. People are not scared of inflation for the long term. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're you're spot on with with all of that. And and that's just a small thing people can do to educate themselves on understanding the difference between nominal rate and real rate, because that's a huge, huge uh, tool to when you're making especially like a home purchase right to know whether you're going to be on the uh on the winning end of that equation right so super important to to understand that um yeah absolutely it is i mean that's those are the type like what you're saying i mean these are the type of things that you need to kind of understand in order to make those decisions you know going in because if you're just watching the news you're 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 scared right now of inflation and you're scared of rising interest rates i mean and that's you know and in in being scared is not a good place to be in when you're making major decisions i mean no you're you're (laughs) absolutely right simon i can chat with you all day about this stuff i i love this stuff and i love that you're you're into it. And again, your boots on the ground, you see it each and every day. Uh, you know, so I could chat with you all day about this stuff, but t- tell the audience where they can yes. find you on online Twitter or, or your website or your YouTube, where, where can folks find you? Uh, yeah, I'm most active on YouTube. That's where I try to do most of my comments, you know, for the videos and stuff. Uh, Email is a great way to, you know, if you wanted to send me a message or something like that, uneducatedeconomist at Gmail. Um, I'm starting to do a little bit more activity on Instagram, and I'm going to try and do more stuff on Twitter. But, yeah, um, pretty much I'm active on YouTube, and, you know, that's a uh, – and I also have a website, uneducatedeconomist, you know, .com. Okay. Um, there's a website that you can – I post all my stuff there, but, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, you 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 have a great presence. Uh uh, you know, in terms of 
you know, people who are looking for this information and is the reason why you, you know, you spoke at that event down in Houston is because people want to hear more from you. Right. And so keep, keep doing what you're doing. Uh, I'm, you, I'm so privileged that, you know, you, you, you joined us here today on, on Dirty Boots Capital. I, I'm really so excited about it. And we'll, uh, we'll look to have you back here in a couple of months, see what else is going on in the, uh, the lumber industry and the building industry. And hopefully we'll be in a better place, my friend. Yeah, I hope so too. Well, it was awesome meeting you in Houston, Tony, and I really appreciate you bringing me on for your show and having a conversation with me. I love this. I mean, this is <laughs> nobody likes talking to me here in my life. So. <laughs> this is the only way I can no, converse about economics. <laughs> same thing. Same thing here. Sometimes I'm, I'm, you know, I feel like I'm talking in a vacuum, and you know, uh, maybe in some form, uh, having a YouTube channel is somewhat therapy for us guys like us yeah. so <laughs> yeah that's what it is it's our outlet right yeah. yep all right brother thank you so much for joining us we'll have you on the on the next show uh probably in a couple of months here okay sounds great great thank you so much i appreciate it yeah thank you